Thank you all so much for giving to our church. Thank you for worshiping with us today. And I hope you have a Bible. And if you do, we're going to be in Psalm 76 to start off our time together. We'll end up in Psalm 19. That's going to be our anchor focused psalm today. Uh, Normally I would just throw a single verse on the screen uh, to start us off like we're doing today, but I just wanted you to see this psalm in your Bibles and uh, this particular verse we're going to look at to get it started. I wanted you to see this particular psalm, um, hopefully highlight it, underline it, put a bookmark around it so you would know where it's at um, as we are going through uh, a series of psalms this summer. Um, Psalm 76, as good as it is, uh, I really wasn't going to dedicate a whole message to one verse. We could do that, but, but I wanted to give you a little bit more than that. But this will work nicely with the, the overall uh, message we're going to get from Psalm 19. So hopefully that's not too confusing. We'll be reading Psalm 76, verse 11 in just a minute. Um, you know, it's awesome to sing songs that exalt and magnify the Lord. Um, most of our songs, a lot of songs throughout church history are about God, and we're singing about God, about how, he, how He's good to us, what He's done for us, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but there's something powerful about singing songs, like we just did, in which we proclaim and we profess our commitment to God. As we just sing, I'll follow you anywhere. Not a typical song. Again, most songs are about God and, and magnifying who God is and what he's like and what he's done. But, but, but that was a unique song in that we are singing to God about something we're going to do in response to him. It's one thing to say amen to something that you agree with, when, uh, that a speaker or a singer says or sings. It's another thing uh, when you sing out your faith, when you sing out a profession, it adds a level of accountability to it. It, it puts our own skin in the game right? You, you expect the singers and the preacher to believe what they are saying, and, and you amen them because, hey, you like what, that, like what they say. But when we also sing out, when we all sing out together uh, about how we're responding to God, that adds a little bit accountability, whether you realize it or not or thought about it or not. Or not those songs, they're intentional in, in what they do. As a church body, we are in a covenant with each other. Uh, covenant is a fancy word for a promise. We have promised to each other that we're going to serve the Lord together and represent Him as a body here. But we're also in covenant with God, that we are promising to God that we're going to serve Him, and He's promised to us an abundant uh, of goodness and graciousness, right? We're committed to each other, right? We're committed in a covenant to each other, and we're committed together to God, as in we're holding each other accountable and holding each other um, to the promises that we claim, that we believe, and that we uh, have made. So when we sing out uh, about God together and sing about his promises, that's special because we're being encouraged together. It's awesome to sing about God together because we're all encouraging each other with these promises. But when we sing to God and we make promises to God, our accountability increases. Our motivation is heightened. Now, I can't make you sing anything, but just like I can't make anybody come forward at an altar to make a public profession or a public decision. Uh, but, but the reason why that public part of a service is so important and the reason why corporate worship and singing out together is so important, you, you can sing anywhere. You can sing in the shower. You can sing on the road. You can sing in your own private time or with your family. But when you sing out together as a church family, we are increasing our accountability. That's a good thing. We need accountability. We need to be held to 
what we believe and to be encouraged by those, uh, by, by those people. So when we sing out to God and we sing to God, hey, I'm going to do this because you're so great and I'm going to respond. When we respond to God in a public, real, uh, you know, physical way, whether through a song we sing or through an altar that we worship at, uh, when we do that, um, it, it, it doesn't just increase our accountability, but it also it increases or it heightens our motivation. As in, hey, I've just made this public profession. I've just made this public declaration. I've just sing out this promise to God in front of all these people. So we're a little bit more motivated, or you should be. We're a little bit more passionate about what we just did. And, and as we continue this summer series through Psalms, uh, looking for rest and refuge and perspective from some of the most heartfelt passages in the Bible, one of the consistent themes in Psalms, uh, which many, uh, w- which we usually think about the Psalms as being ancient worship songs, which they were, uh, one of the, c- the consistent themes is this idea of the community of God's people not just singing about God, there's plenty of those, but singing to God and making vows to God with their worship. So making worship more than just something that we experience or we observe, but making worship something that we actually get involved in and we actually are participating in. And that's why I wanted to start our time together with Psalm 76, verse 11. I've probably referenced this verse before. I've probably emailed you about this verse before. But if you haven't ever looked at it before or it's not one that you've got bookmarked or highlighted or memorized, I would offer you this is an important one to put up there and at least aspire to make a big deal about. This is uh, Psalm 76, verse 11. This is echoed throughout the book of Psalms, but this is one that I go back to again and again. And this is a commandment. This is as much a commandment. Think about this. This is as much of a commandment as the Ten Commandments, as Jesus' commandment to love one another and love the Lord your God, this, you know, just because it's not in a certain chapter in a certain other book doesn't mean it's any less important, right? Psalm 76, verse 11, make vows to the Lord your God and pay them or fulfill them. Go through with them. Make a promise to God and do it. Let all who are around him bring presents to him. And and that doesn't mean God doesn't want, you know, bring a physical thing to him. What's that going to do? Bring your life to him, right? What does the New Testament teach? You're a living sacrifice. Bring your lives to him. Bring your hearts to him. Let all around him bring presents to him who ought to be feared. So that's just a simple verse I wanted to give you, put in your minds as we get started today. And hopefully it'll be something that'll just turn around and churn in your minds over the next week. Hopefully longer than that. This is a psalm, a verse that's, that's a part of a worship song from a long time ago. That's all about making vows to God, making promises to God, and doing them, accomplishing them, bringing our lives to God, and being true to what we've just committed to God. So it's good for us as people. It's good for us, and I read this verse, I reread this verse so much in preparation for worship, because I want to I wanna always know, and I want you to always know this, that worship, being, being in a, a place like this on Sunday mornings, not because of the way it looks or the way you're dressed, but because of what we're doing, being in a place like this on a Sunday or whenever you're here is a sacred, serious privilege. To be able to come together in a place like this and sing out together while nobody knows your heart, the church has been tasked in leading its people to, to a place of public confession and public accountability since the beginning of the the church, even before that. This precedent was set 
in the days of ancient Israel. Remember the story of Moses, where Moses calls to the children of Israel as they're trying to decide, are we going to go back to Egypt? Are we going to stay with Moses? Are we going to continue through the wilderness? What are we going to do? And Moses, famously on the mountain, says, who is on the Lord's side? Come and stand by me. There's that story of Joshua as he's leading the children of Israel into the promised land. And he's about to, to live his last days. And he says, hey guys, I'm no longer going to be your leader. I've chosen that I'm to serve the Lord and I'm going to live out my day serving the Lord. But you must choose this day whom you will serve. There's the story of Elijah tasking Israel to choose a side. No longer be on the side of Baal or trying to hobby between the two and limp between the two. There's the story of Nehemiah calling the people to rise up and build the temple and the city they were trying to rebuild. Of course, Jesus' entire ministry is about calling people to follow him. So think about this. All throughout the Bible, we read about standing up, choosing, rising up, following. All of these, these, these callings on our lives entail repenting and unfollowing anything else that has lordship over our lives. And lordship mean, means control, overwhelming influence, priorities, right? The New Testament, Old Testament, whichever you read, you have it from Moses, Elijah, Nehemiah, Joshua, Jesus. His commandment was follow me. And if you're going to follow Jesus, what do we always read about in the Gospels? If you follow Jesus, that's going to mean you're going to unfollow other things. Jesus talked to rich people. He said, hey guys, you're going to have to unfollow your love for money. He talked to people that were obsessed with power. You're going to have to unfollow your obsession with power. He talked to people that were obsessed with so much of this world. And he said, you, you're going to have to unfollow those things if you're going to follow me. Choose. Rise up. Stand up. Follow. So as a church, if, we, if you wonder why I and why we often encourage you to step out and go public with your faith and why we sing out and confess things that require a commitment, well, it's, it's proven to be effective, uh, an effective form of worship for thousands of years. The Bible's book on worship teaches us to use this model. So I say all this. I say all this because Psalms is full of songs written to and about the Lord. Psalms is, is a book of, uh, are full of thanksgiving and praises and worship. But the purpose of those songs and the purpose of any song, song that we sing in worship, anything that we do in worship, whether it's pray or, or give or listen, uh, it, it's, more than, it's more than just a passive ritual. That, that worship is more than just something that we observe and that we passively kind of are involved in. All throughout church history, going back even to the days of the temple gatherings, there has been this push and pull, this ongoing conversation between the people that are in charge and the people that are making decisions, the people that are leading people in worship. There's always been this question, what's the purpose of worship? What's its place? What's its role? What's our role? And, and, and this debate about, uh, uh, you know, what is sufficient worship? We think the argument in our modern day about what kind of music we sing, we think that's new. That's not new. That's just another example of the ongoing struggle throughout the thousands of years of history of the church and previously with Israel. When the conversation devolved into just about style, we've kind of lost the plot though. And that's what's been argued time and time again throughout history. And really what it all, what it all boils down to and what all the people throughout church history and, and, and before in Israel's days, what they all agreed on is that worship is not a spectator experience. It's not just a spectator sport. 
Worship is not to be reduced to a dynamic of an audience with a performance in front of them. Worship is not a performance we attend, observe, and sit around a table and talk about later, right? And that goes on plenty. Uh, but, but, but that's what it often has drifted into being across time. But sometimes, you know, I sit back and I listen to the arguments and, I, and the different sides, and, and I'm thinking, guys, it's been right in front of us the whole time. Psalm 76, verse 11, in a nutshell, describes worship. In a single sentence, worship is about bringing our vows to God and leaving with an ambition and an accountability to go and perform them. If you want to know what is the heart of worship, you know, 20, 30 years ago, that was the big debate in the church world. You know, let's get to the heart of worship. And and the church has went in so many different directions ever since. But the heart of worship, the core of what worship is about, is bringing our vows to God responding to God because of how good he is and what he's done for us. So I guess you could say worship is about performance, but not by just a few on a stage, but all of us in real life. So yes, worship is about performance. It's about how we live. It's about what we do, but not about what goes on on platforms like this and pulpits like this, but about what we do on the stage of real life. At one point in ancient Israel, things got so corrupt, the temple had disregarded its call to do good and to to be a a, a force for good in the community and and, and defend those that couldn't defend themselves. Famously, and and this was made famous by by, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King a long time ago, but famously, this is what the prophet Amos said to the people of Israel. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Well, I mean, isn't it all about just putting on a good show and having a good, you know, hour-long experience? I mean, they, they would worship for six or seven, eight hours. If you go back in the Old Testament and read some of their services. I mean, talking about putting you to sleep. But they, they, would, they had some pretty amazing, long, all-day worship experiences. But God finally says, guys, I'm, I'm kind of sick of it. Really, God? I mean, we're doing what you told us to do. We have the Sabbath day, and we have the new moon festival. We have all the different seasonal festivals, and we're doing it all the way you told us to do it. And God says, I really don't care about that stuff. I know it helps people, and it's important, and God inspired songs. Of course, it's important. But God finally says, y'all, just stop singing. I don't want to listen to it anymore. And it wasn't because it was bad. (laughs) They had the most professional, well-skilled musicians in the world. God says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. As in, justice refers to how you treat one another. What are you doing with your life and how are you making a difference in the world? That's what Jesus called loving one another. Righteousness is how are you with God? What's your condition with God? What's your relationship with God? So that's just the the love God and love your neighbor uh, uh, verse in a nutshell, uh, condensed down. So what is God concerned about? God isn't worried about how great the services are on a Sunday morning in any place and time. It's great that they're awesome and they should be as good as they can be, but that's not what impresses God. God told Israel when there was just one place that you would worship, he says, just stop it. I've heard those songs a hundred times. You think you've wrote a new song? I knew it was going to be written. I've listened to it already. It's not that good. Listen, y'all. What matters to me is justice and righteousness. It's you living out your faith and making a difference in the world. That's what I care about. The point is, 
Is worship important? Yes. But we don't just worship here. We worship everywhere. But what are these services all about? Preparing us and springboarding us into going out and living like we should. They're to rally us and prepare us and, and, and motivate us. So worship has always been about committing ourselves to God as much as it is about singing about God and, and, and feeling good. If there's one thing you should know as you go into the rest of the Psalms and study this whole book, this book is meant to get you to engage with God and respond to God. So hopefully, if I've, if I've done anything in the first little bit of this message, I hope that you understand that when you walk into a worship service, I, I don't care if the worship service is, is a full-blown you know, mega church production or if it's just a local church doing the best it can with the resources it has. That when you walk into a worship service, that worship service is not just about emotions. And I know that's what we're tempted to think about. We just want to feel good or feel what we want to feel, right? Feel close. That's all. That's normal. We have emotions. We're people that are wired by emotions. God knows that. Nothing wrong with that. But that's not just what it's about. Worship services are meant to inspire us. So when we come to church, we come expecting to be inspired and ready to make our vows to God and fulfill them. But what if I told you that we aren't just accountable to respond to the worship services that take place on stages like this, in buildings like this, on days like this? That the only worship service that you are a part of every single day or every single week is not just what happens on Sunday morning in a place like this, though it should be an important one for you. What if I told you that every single day there are worship services going on all around us that are meant to be just as effective on us as any given Sunday service. And they may not be full of songs of, of what we would expect to be hymns or worship songs. They may not be a sermon that we would hear in a church. But there are things going on all around us every single day that are meant to be as effective on us and as motivating over us as any given Sunday service you've ever been to. What if we are just as accountable to them as we are to places and services like we have here? On that note, our attention turns, turns to Psalm 19. So flip back a few dozen pages or so. Psalm 19 is one of those songs that we've been talking about. It's meant to inspire us. It's a song about lifting up God. It's a beautiful song about exalting God and glorifying God, but it's also a song wherein we are putting ourselves on the line and we are saying, since God is like this, I'm going to respond in a way that he is worthy of. And it's also a song that lets us or clues us into what is going on all around us, not just in places with steeples and places with pews and with worship bands and with sermons, but even in nature even in our world, that we may not pay that much attention to. This is one of my most favorite chapters of the Bible. I think about it. I, I, there's songs that repurpose these, these words to, to, to be moderate for modern music. And, and, and I, love, I love this psalm so much. I quote it. I think about it every single day. I hope it'll be one that you will do the same with going forward. We're going to read the first six verses. Follow along with me. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork, and that just means the skies above. Day after day, 
utters speech. The night into night reveals knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. And that tells us that no matter what the language of the people on, uh, on the earth above us and around us, there is a beautiful language being spoken by very nature itself. Verse 4 continues, And then he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run his race. Its rising is from one end of heaven, and its circuit to the other end. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. And that's referring to, of course, the sun. I think the initial premise of Psalm 19 might be lost on us, so I want to kind of help you understand why this psalm would have been so relevant and poignant for the people of their day. In the ancient world, the heavens, the skies, they didn't have telescopes. They didn't know what was beyond the sky that you see above us right now. They could see the sun come up. They could see the moon. They could see the stars. But they didn't know much else was out beyond that. In the ancient world, the heavens and the skies, particularly the objects of the sky, the things that came out of the sky, weather, they were of special interest and import to the people below. The people that made the most money in the ancient world were people that studied what was going on in the heavens and in the sky and in nature and the atmosphere. From the earliest of recorded history, people were always observing and tracking the heavens, the stars, the sky, and, and all of nature. And you might wonder why? Because in humanity's quest to, to find God or connect with the gods, before there was any concrete evidence for him or communication from him, they were drawn to the heavens naturally. Now, this is obvious why uh, it would be a connection to us, but, but we know so much more than they did, right? The real reason why people assumed the heavens were the window into God's eyes was because how at the mercy the whole world was on what came out of the sky and what was going on in the sky. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Don't imagine... Un unlearning all that you know about how science and nature and the climate and the weather. Imagine you don't know anything that you know that you've, been, that you've learned from childhood up. Can you imagine how captivated people must have been when they looked up at the sky thousands of years ago? As they saw a storm cloud forming, as they saw lightning strike, as they saw the sun rising and the sun setting, as they saw the stars and all their splendor. I mean, we understand the science of it all. We can study the weather and we can predict what's going to happen in, in the next week or so. But for them, I mean, one day they're outside, it's hot and it's sunny. One day there's an eclipse and they can't see for several hours. One day, the, 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 the next day, the sun, the rain is pouring down and their homes are being flooded. I mean, they had no way of knowing what we know. The ancients were both amazed and terrified at the heavens and all they brought to the earth. Some seasons it would rain endlessly. Others it would be a, a drought and they would have a famine because of it. I mean, obviously, with it being completely an, an agricultural society, the weather was everything for people that lived thousands of years ago. For this reason, the earliest of religions developed uh, around this idea of tracking the sky and, and looking at the sky and trying to find signs and, and patterns in the sky and the stars and the weather. And if you study history, and, and I'm, I'm sure many of you have learned this, but if you study ancient religions, the earliest pagan priests were also weather analysts and stargazers. 
that if you, if you all of a sudden were dropped in to, uh, to a, a tribe in the Middle East or in Europe or in North America with the natives, if you were dropped into any part of the world circa 1000 BC, even, even 500 AD or so, before the church began to grow and boom and, and spread, if you were to drop in at any point in history before the church really spread around the world, and you were to go to one of the pagan priests of the, of the culture, of the, of the tribe or of the village, they would be people who were experts in their day on the weather and on tracking and analyzing the stars. That was the heart of religion because they thought there was something being said by the gods from the heavens. It made sense. The ancients tried to understand, is there anything we can learn and is, are the gods or is God trying to communicate something to us from what's going on above us and around us? From 4,000 B.C. to the earliest days of, of Christianity, all of the pagan priests were also amateur astrologists and meteorologists. That's why when Jesus was born, you had these magi, wise men, and that's just a fancy word for, they were stargazers. You had these stargazers who noticed a bright star in the sky a couple thousand miles away, and they show up because they thought, hey, we've been looking at the stars our whole life. We've never seen that one. Study any ancient religion. The priests were obsessed with the weather and the stars. Psalm 19 is the Jewish and the Christian response to the ancient world's efforts to make sense of what's going on around us. The ancients had gods for rain and gods for lightning. If you ever study ancient religions and you wonder why is there a god for rain, a god for lightning, a god for thunder, a god for XYZ weather pattern... Why were the ancients so obsessed with constellations and why did they worship the sun and the moon and the stars... Because all of that was a result of people studying the stars and the weather and trying to connect the dots between the sky above and life below. Now we know, Genesis tells us, the reason why Genesis tells us that Yahweh, the Lord, is the creator of the heavens. He's the creator of all the things from the sun, the moon, the stars, to the earth that we live on and the clouds between us in space. That is all meant to show us that God is in charge of all of this. But... Psalm 19 is, is David taking a step further and saying, you want to know what the heavens are telling us? You want to know what nature is telling us? You want to know what the sun and the moon and the stars and weather are telling us? They're trying to point us to God. You want to know what's going on around us? There is a worship service going on every single moment of every single day from galaxies thousands of light years away to the earth that we live on. That nature itself is worshiping God. And we may not always understand it. And we may raise our eyebrow to it. But nature knows much more than we might would let it, would assume it does. When the sun, nature is worshiping God and responding to God. It's always trying to get us to pay attention to him. That's what Psalm 19 is all about. Now to us, we think, well, that's kind of cute. But, you know, I, I know how all this works. To the ancients... They didn't know anything. And David said, listen, don't, don't go looking for the sun or the moon or the stars in some sort of, you know, as if they're a sign from the you know, gods or the pagan gods that you're told to worship. Listen, God, our Lord, is in charge of all of this. But all these things are meant to get us to pay attention to him. When the sun beams down, we're reminded of his light. When the rain falls... We're reminded of his provision. I know that's so elementary to us, but can you imagine how, how revolutionary that would have been for them? That as the sun shines down, that is God's light. That is the reminder of God's light. When the rain falls, 
That's a reminder that God provides. And even when the storms rage, we're reminded that He is our refuge. When disaster overwhelms from floods or other kinds of, of, of storms, we're reminded of our frailty and our world's fragility. That, that God is sovereign over all of nature. And whenever we feel like, hey, what, how, what, you know, where's God in that? Where's God in that? That is God trying to show you that, you know what, this world is not as secure as you thought it was. We are not as strong as we thought we were. And our refuge is in Him alone. Notice all these reminders. Psalm 19 is trying to get us to understand how badly we need to be reminded. How willing and active nature is at reminding us. Now, the next few verses that we'll read later, uh, we'll read at the end, um, uh, the next few verses go from de declaring, uh, observing nature to declaring um, uh, God's word and God's will as being the most delightful thing in our lives. What's the connection between nature worshiping God and us paying attention to God's word and God's will? It's this. We so often... And so naturally, turn away from what God has for us. We devalue him and his will in favor of everything else we've got going on in life. And David's saying, pay attention to the simplest of things around you. From the sun to the rain, even the storms. Pay attention to the heavens. David confesses his inclination that we all are, by nature, turn away or turn aside from God. Down in verse 12 and 14, listen to this. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me. This is referring to our, our own human uh, nature. Cleanse me from secret faults, from my hidden faults. Keep back your servant from pres presumptuous sins or things that we do without really paying attention to what we do. That we, we sin and we don't even think it's that big of a deal. We make excuses for them because, hey, that's just how it is and it's okay, isn't it? Presumptuous sins, hidden faults, let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgressions and sin. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. So David confesses his weakness, his sinfulness. And if we're being honest, we'll echo this confession. Our inclination is not to acknowledge and, and not to give our attention to God as he's trying to get, it, to get us to pay attention to him. All the while, we've got blind spots and hidden flaws in our lives that we don't even notice, yet they practically have control over our lives. Think about this. There are things in all of us. There are things in all of our lives, in all of our hearts, that... People see, but we don't. And you can, you know, there's all sorts of studies on this. You know, people that, that are just pathologically blind or, or, or just, they just, they're just completely oblivious to it. There are things inside all of our lives, things that we do, things, mistakes that we repeat, sins that we repeat. There are things in our nature, flaws in our nature, blind spots in our own hearts that we don't pay attention to or we aren't even aware of and there's a correlation. All of nature is worshiping God around us at all times. Sometimes it dances in his light. Sometimes it trembles under his terror. But all of that is meant to open our eyes and lead us to live for the Lord and show us or reveal to us how disconnected we are from God. 
Romans chapter 1 issues this indictment over our entire race, saying that in spite of all that God is doing around us to get our attention, we just blast through the speed bumps and we just blast through the barriers again and again and again. Check this out. For what can be known about God is playing to them. Because God has shown it to them. How has he shown it to us? It goes on. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that we are without excuse. Now listen, you may not pay a big pay a lot of attention to the sun and the sky and the rain and the weather and all the things going on around us. You may not pay attention to nature. You may not be into that stuff. Not everybody is, right? You may not be impressed by the stars or by what's going on in the ocean. I get that. But my point is, there are so many things around us that were put there to make us acknowledge God and be amazed at God and keep our eyes on God so that we are without excuse. If there's anything that you can say about humanity is we love to make excuses and we are good at it, aren't we? Now, you might be ready to bring the thunder down on somebody else, but you, you know what it's like to make excuses because you make excuses for you. You make excuses for the people that you love the most, and I get it. I do too, right? I'm quick to judge somebody I don't know, but I'm quick to cover up for the person that I do know. Isn't it true that we just all make excuses? But what is Paul's indictment? What is his, his, his word, his, his sentence on us? That we're without excuse. He, he goes on. For although they knew God and they did, not honor, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And this is such a big indictment on our generation. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. We are the smartest, crafty, shrewd, sly generation that's ever lived. But what does the word say? Claiming to be wise. We've become fools. Wow. Something I think all of us are familiar with is this phenomenon called cause and effect. I don't really got to explain that to you, do I? Um, certain things have a connection. One thing causes another from the microscopic to the cosmic. It's a series of dominoes. Life is a series of dominoes. In any given lane, in any given area of the universe, from climate to culture, when one domino falls, a whole series are bound to follow. This is just how the universe was wired to work. Um, it's the reaping and sowing law. Uh, it's obvious and not so obvious. In some, in some cases, uh, there's just this interconnectivity. There's this codependency on everything, people and all the things around us. Isaac Newton, which is obviously a famous physicist and scientist that was, uh, lived hundreds of years ago, he came up with different laws uh, that helped explain how the universe worked. And they're pretty obvious to us, really juvenile to us at this point. Um, but we have lived in a world, and we saw the world through those lens for so long, but to his day, they were revelatory. Um, probably his most famous uh, law of the universe is really cause and effect. Um, it's for every action in nature, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Now, while this is a reference to objects in the universe, it's also just a good perspective in life to, to be mindful of. Uh, for every word we speak, there's going to be an effect. For everything I say to you, that you're going to hear that, and some, it's going to do something in your heads, right? That's just how it works. For everything I do to somebody, it's going to have an impact on them. For th sometimes, uh, sometimes they're positive, sometimes they're negative, but it's going to be of some kind of consequence. Now, we've all been in situations where we intended on our actions to cause a particular reaction, but we have also realized there are unintended consequences sometimes, aren't there? 
You quit one thing for an area of your health, and then another area begins to suffer a setback. You do something to save money, but then you lose a connection with a friend, right? There are unintended consequences in any area of life. What I wanted to talk about with respect to this, though, is, is this unintended but real-life correlation between our technological progress as a people and our mental stagnation or our mental regression. I don't mean your mental health. I just mean your ability to, to function without certain luxuries. Over the past decades, technology has progressed, but we've suffered some setbacks, haven't we, in our mental retention? It's just, hard. It's just how it works. Uh, with so many technological advancements and luxuries, we've become dependent on them, and many of our mental muscles have atrophied as a result. If you don't lose something, like it said, you'll lose something. You'll lose something about it. Now, this isn't just me being an old man yelling at the clouds, right? I'm not that old, but, but <laughs> this is just a pretty undeniable observation. To put more physics into it, there's this phenomenon called gravitational pull that, that sometimes we just can't fight the way the world's going. That, 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 hey, everybody is using that now and that's the way things operate and you just kind of have to get on board or you're left out in the cold. Even if you've used the latest piece of technology for decades, there are constant changes in the tech world that rope us in and tie us down more and more. Try buying a brand new device of any kind, phone or computer, and, and, and keep that thing disconnected from the internet. It'll panic after a while because it needs that connection because it thinks it can't function without that that stream from the, from, from the servers. Uh, I've, I've never felt more helpless than a few years ago. My, my old car, uh, my, 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 I miss it so much, but I uh, was standing outside my old car uh, and with my keyless, uh, my key, my fob, the key fob, and I had took the little secret key out, out of it because I didn't think I needed that. Ryan, why do I need this thing? I don't ever use it. I didn't realize there was a way to get in the car with the key when the battery died in the key fob. Well, here I was standing outside of Lowe's without a bat, with a key fob that didn't have a battery without a way to get into my car. I mean, what good is this, Right? We've, we've kind of learned to live in a world where that kind of, that's just the drift of things, right? And you can, you know, raise your fist and, and say, oh, I hate that stuff. But that's just kind of how it is, right? That technology has kind of swept everything under, uh, up under this, this rush. But I think one of the areas that technology has had the biggest impact, the biggest detrimental impact on us is when it comes to our, uh, our, our, our mental our, our retention, when it comes to our memories. There are so many high-profile studies that suggests that technology is having an adverse effect on our memories. Research teams from all over the world um, uh, have decided that the collective memory of humanity is getting worse. Now, you might not have, you might not have the best memory already, right? But you probably have noticed this, right? Um, uh, but but there's, there's a snippet of a study that even though technology may not affect the actual information we receive, it does affect how we perceive it and how we store it in our memory. Our memories are getting worse. Don't worry, though. Technology has come through for us because every device you have has a feature or an app called Reminders because they know we are so prone to forget, right? If you have an iPhone, there's an app on your phone that looks just like that. Every phone has that. If you have a little screen in your kitchen that plays music for you, you can say to it, hey, remind me to do this later because we forget, don't we? And the more reliant we are on those things, the more likely we are to forget, Again, I'm not trying to get angry at your phone or your computer, all that stuff. That's just kind of how it is. But the, here's the thing. Our, our inclination to be forgetful, our memory loss, it, it's not really new. Our memory loss, our inclination to forget goes all the way back to the fall. So before there was any technology. Sorry. 
It's not all that fault. Not all its fault. When humanity fell into sin, perhaps the greatest side effect was that we became prone to forget about God. I mean, just completely forget that he's even there and live life as if he's not Lord over us. We live and make decisions as if there isn't a God, in particular as if he isn't our God and as if we aren't his creation. A notion that seems completely absurd, unthinkable, but if we're being honest, it's absolutely true about us. It's without question our worst trait, but also our most defining trait as a people. We are a forgetful people, aren't we? There's somebody's song just is reminding them of something. I'm just kidding. We're forgetful people, aren't we? we? We've said, hey, if I didn't have a reminder, I would lose my own head, right? We've, we've been that way before. We walk out of the house, and, 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 and we all have that tendency to forget. Especially when it comes to remembering the Lord. Consider this. The book of Deuteronomy, which is the book that outlines God's covenant for Israel. His promise to them as a people. It also addresses our propensity, our tendency to just completely tune out and zone out from God. Completely forget about God. And this was written to the people of God that he just saved from Egypt. Not pagans, not unbelievers. While it's easy to explain how technology has made our memories worse, it's not that easy to explain why we are prone to forget and disregard the Lord. But the proof is in thousands of years of human history where all of us just unanimously, naturally forget. Ten times in the book of Deuteronomy, not counting all the other verses in the Bible, ten times you can read a verse like this or something similar to it. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God. Why would that need to be a reminder that the Bible gives the people of God? Think about that. Why is there a verse in the Bible that reminds us not to forget the Lord who inspired the Bible? Why is that even in there? It's in there ten times in that one book. It's all over the Bible from front to back. Why is there this consistent, persistent reminder, do not forget the Lord? Because, because all of us throughout history forget. But all of those on repeat weren't enough to prevent the Jews from doing what all of us have done since then. It's like Isaiah tells us, all of us are like sheep. We've all gone astray. We've all turned every one of us to our own way. But it's just like Romans 1 says, we are without excuse. I, I know that Psalm 19 might not really do, it might not be the jolt to your battery, right? Like when you're jumping off a car, it might not do to your system like what I think it was supposed to do to the ancients and what it may should do to us. But Psalm 19 puts all of life in a beautiful, brilliant frame. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Listen, this whole series is about slowing down, thinking a little bit, analyzing where you are with God, thinking about how you're connecting, how your relationship with God is. When's the last time you just let God speak to you and, and remind you of his preeminence and of his glory through the simplest of things in life? And again, I know that's not really, that's not the most trendy message to preach, not the most awe-inspiring thing, but that's what the Bible says that we should all be inspired by, and that's what the Bible says that we're all accountable to, and while we're without excuse... 
And we live in a generation where we have so many avenues to be amazed at what's going on around us. The ancients, it was just what was in front of them, and that was enough. You and I, you can, you can whether you take a trip or just go online and just observe some of the stuff that's going on around us, there are so many examples of how the universe is praising God and worshiping God, how the heavens declare his glory. Y'all know me, I love space, I love science, I love looking into the stars and seeing things that are millions of light years away. Um, just a couple years ago, the, the James Webb telescope was perfected by NASA. It put the old Hubble one to bed. Hey, you thought that was impressive? Take a look at this. Uh, just one of the images that has been captured by uh, the James Webb uh, uh, NASA um, uh, imaging system. Can you imagine, can you imagine we look at the night sky and we think it just looks black. It just looks dark. But all around, and, and I, I, I've done this before. I'm not going to do it to you. But we could go through countless pictures of what the beauty of our universe expresses about God. And Psalm 19 tells us the reason why all this is around us, you might think, what's all that matter? The reason why all that isn't going on around us is so that we might be reminded of our God. And you know this, the, the Bible, it says there that the, the nature is singing. Did you know that? You might not like the songs that we sing every Sunday. You might not, you might not like the songs that every, the different churches sing. But do you know that nature is singing? And you've heard the birds sing, I know. And you've looked into the night sky. But just an example of what one of the constellations sounds like at all times. And that might not be your preferred song. The heavens are singing. And even the oceans are singing out songs. Again, we don't know what they're singing, but we know who they're singing to. The stars in the galaxies are singing to God. The whales in the ocean are singing to God. What song are you singing? More importantly, how are you living in light of being inspired by these songs, in light of being inspired by what we do here every Sundays? How is your life a song in and of itself? How is your life a picture of worship? We have so many reminders from God because we are also likely to forget. In our forgiveness, we also become unaware of our own greatest flaw. That is, our, that is an undeniable correlation. So I guess where we land this today is coming under the challenge of Psalm 19. To pay more attention to how there is worship being given to God all around us, meant to direct our hearts to Him, and maybe that will cause us to even be more intentional in our worship gatherings here. In closing, look at verses 7 through 11. We skipped over. This is what David says is in front of us from God. God's word and God's will. The law of the will, Lord, the will of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing in the heart. So what do, what do we find here? That God's word and God's will changes our souls, makes us wise and makes us full of joy. 
The commandment of the Lord is pure, opening our eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, giving us the endurance and patience we need. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold, yet much more fine than gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is a great reward. What if that's true? What if knowing God and following him leads us to this same delight and joy as, his, as David just described? May we always be reminded of him and his plans for us. Because David says, more desirable than riches, sweeter than the greatest, the best of foods, is the work that God does in our hearts. How he opens our eyes, how he makes us wise, gives us joy, changes us from the inside out. We'll never know this delight and joy until we start paying attention to all that is out there to remind us of him and is meant to drive us to him. So here's what my prayer is for us, that we would pray that God would make us more sensitive to all of his reminders from nature to what we do here, that we would become a more sensitive people so that we might be a more mindful people, a less forgetful people a more dependent people. All of our life, from success to failure, is meant to be a reminder of who God is, motivating us to put him first and to be blessed by him and live for him. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the reminders you've given us today. Lord, we are so prone to forget. No doubt many of us will forget before the day is over and we'll start tomorrow and we'll go down that cycle of just going through the motions and going through the rituals and just doing what we've got to do and, and, and getting our minds going astray and being forgetful. And maybe somewhere down through the week we'll be reminded that we left God back a couple days ago. Lord, I pray that you would make us ever mindful, always reminded, always focused on you and may we be inspired by even nature around us may we be inspired by the simplest of gestures from our world from the songs the animals sing to the pictures in the night sky more importantly god may we allow this service and your word to always captivate us and always motivate us help us father to see the joy that you've promised us and the reward that you've promised us and chase after that because you are truly great and truly awesome. May we have an ever-present heart, an ever-full heart of worship because you are a great and awesome God. May we never forget it. May we always be motivated by it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.